It's, it's truly great to be here. Um, as Pastor Brett said, it's a beautiful day. It's a day we can gather. And today we're finishing up a series that we've entitled Open House. And I would invite you next week, if church is not your regular thing, come next week. It's going to be a great time. If you have some friends or family in town, um, bring them with you. I heard, I heard a rumor that there was going to be, you know, those like... Um, inverted like free fall machines that like blow underneath you and you like free fall that's not going to be here uh sorry it's the the jury's still out on whether or not that's going to be here but you should come and see if it's actually going to show up or not but it it is going to be a fun day lots of fun great opportunity for you if you have some friends or family that maybe as pastor brett said they don't yet know jesus uh great time for you to bring them And, and as a part of this series We've been kind of peeling back the curtain, hoping to answer the question, why do we do what we do? Uh, Why do we have coffee out in the lobby? Uh, Which, as a side note, I I go to a couple of the different campuses, and I'm not just saying that because I'm here in Vestal. Your coffee's better. I'm just going to say it. Um, I do get to visit a lot of the campuses, so your coffee's good. Why do we serve coffee? Why do we play the music that we play? Why do we have kids' ministry that we have? We've been answering that question, and we we have simply said, why we do what we do is because Jesus gave us a command to make more and better disciples. That's at our DNA. That is our mission as a church, is to make more and better disciples. And so as a part of this series, we've been using the analogy of a house and showing you different rooms, which, which highlight different ministries that we offer, like the Sunday morning worship service, where you're at right now, um, our small group ministry, which that's going to be kicking off real soon. You should sign up for that. Um, and then we've been talking about how we can serve. Last week, we talked about how, how and why you should serve. Today, we're going to be kind of wrapping that series up with what we're going to call a bookend. And if you remember, maybe you weren't here in the first week, and if you weren't, I would encourage you to go to bridgewater.church where you can listen to all of the the series, uh, the sermons in this series. And in that first week, we talked about that great commission, that that great command from Jesus to make more and better disciples. Today, we're going to kind of bookend this series with the idea of what does that look like? Um, and, And maybe in your own life, how can you go from wherever you're at to being more like Christ. Now, a disciple simply is, is somebody who imitates someone else. So if you are a disciple of me, you might say you're a little or an imitator of Josh. Well, we're to be imitators of Jesus. We're to make more and better disciples of Christ. So, so we're trying to be more like Christ. So today we're going to look at how we can move from wherever we're at to being more like Christ. Now, in my life, I've had the opportunity to sit across from different people as they shared their struggles, and maybe you've, you've heard people's struggles. Maybe you've heard people's uh, issues. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've heard those, but I have never heard a statement like this. All of my struggles... All of my difficulty, everything in life that has gone bad started when I didn't make the junior high soccer team. Everything came crashing down 
when I didn't get into the college that I wanted to go to. My life turned to shambles because I had to drive a used car in high school. Right? That, that never has happened. I've never heard that. And I would assume that you haven't heard that either. But what we know from that and what we know from experience is that what seems significant in the moment in the long run is often insignificant or less significant, right? The tendency in our culture is to be experience rich and relationship poor. A couple weeks ago, I was here and we talked about this this relationship recession that has been plugging our society, right? Where, Where we are so emphatic about experiencing things and yet we don't place the same energy on the relationships that truly we should be focusing on. We have this mindset that I want my kids to have experiences that I never had. Or I want to experience things that my parents never got to experience. But in reality, if you're a little bit more mature, you're likely to say experiences are overrated. The biggest choices that we make in our lives are not impacted by our experiences. Instead, the biggest choices we make are impacted by our relationships. Having that cup of coffee with a trusted friend to help you through something. Sitting on the phone and talking with your parents about making a life choice. Those are the moments that have the greatest impact in our lives. The the relationships, not the experience. Well, to help us get this idea this morning of how we can move from where we're at to having a greater relationship with Jesus, we're going to use uh, three different chairs. And the chairs are going to show up um, behind me, but we're going to hopefully answer the question of what kind of person are you? The first chair would be that of a bar stool. This chair would be a, a committed follower of Jesus. The second chair would be that of a recliner. That's a comfortable chair, right? That's a comfortable Christian. And maybe I should put a little air quote on there. The third chair would be that of a beanbag chair. That is just a fun chair to be in, right? That is a fun chair. So as we look at these three chairs, hopefully we're going to begin to pull out from there Where are you at and where should you be? The first chair talks about being a committed Christian. Now, we're going to highlight that often we see that the committed Christian would be a first-generation Christian. The goal of their life, the people who sit in this chair, is to please God. Now, they're not perfect, The people who sit in this first chair are not perfect, but at the end of the day, their desire is to trust God. They want to live a radically different life. Verses like Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God. So if you are in this chair, this is you. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind. You offer up your bodies, as Paul says, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable. You have been crucified with Christ. It's not you who live, but Christ who lives within you. You trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and you don't lean on your own understanding, but you acknowledge God in all your ways. The Bible is clear. This is the chair you should want to be in. This is the chair that should be the example or the the model for your life. The second chair would be the comfortable chair. This is the chair that often is the second generation in in your family tree. This would be the second generation tree often. When we look at Scripture, there's a, a, a group of um, um, verses, a group of chapters called the Judges. And really it's a, a category of the stories of the people of Israel. Now the people of Israel were God's chosen people. And God had directed his chosen people to go into different lands and to take over those lands. And when they did that, when they went in and overtook those lands, he told them to drive out the Canaanites or the, um, all the other ites. If you're reading scripture and you're reading all these weird names and they end with ite, chances are really good they're bad people. So just that's free information for you. So God told them to go in and drive out the Canaanites. Now, if you're familiar with scripture you know that often what happened was the Israelite people, they obeyed sort of, halfway. They went in and they overtook the land. But what happened was instead of driving the people completely out of the land, they allowed them to stay. And what began to happen is those those foreign belief systems, those foreign priorities began to permeate into the culture. And we see that, that the belief and the view of God in the Israelites' life, it began to be polluted. These are the type of people that Jesus described in Matthew chapter 6 as fighting a battle, an internal battle. They're, they're struggling with serving God and serving money, or serving the things of the world. These are the the people who are constantly struggling. The third group of people represented by the beanbag chair is that of the carnal. Now, carnal is kind of a a unique word, but we're going to kind of look at the idea of being a non-Christian. Carnal just means worldly. So when we see carnal, we think of a non-Christian. Now, in Scripture... Often, this would be represented in the third generation. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, what that means is they died. A whole generation died. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served other Baals. They forsook the Lord, or they ignored the Lord. They, they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods and the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook or ignored him. 
and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. When Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Now, you don't have to be familiar with Scripture to realize that that doesn't seem like an awesome story, right? This, this, uh, this, this whole generation had died, and this new generation didn't know God, didn't obey God, and in turn, they followed what was going on around them. Now, sitting in the beanbag chair of life, there's no growth. But, like in, the, in chair number two, in the recliner, there's a struggle. In the beanbag chair, there's no struggle. You might say that this person who sits in this chair, they're headed to hell, but they don't care. That, that's, not a, that's not an issue for them. They're fine with that. These people who sit in this chair have only ever heard about God. Now, when we look in Scripture, we've said each of these chairs often represents a generation. And in Scripture, this is a, a, an unfortunate pattern of generational regression. Now, some of you, that may be a really big concept, but I think some of you are actually living that or have experienced that. When it comes to your belief in God, there's a generational regression from generation to generation to generation. There's a regression from the things of God. In, in Scripture, there's uh, a Chronicles. There's, there's First and Second Chronicles, and a Chronicle is really a, a compilation of stories about the kings. And in Second Chronicles, chapter 14, we're introduced to King Asa. Now, again, if we're using the chairs, King Asa is sitting in the bar stool. He is a committed follower of God. And in chapter 14, verse 2, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars from the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. I mean, that's, that's a, a king who is committed to God. He takes a stand. He lives a radical, radically different life. And then his son comes onto the scene. Asa's son, Jehoshaphat, we see he begins to compromise. In chapter 19, verses 1, King Jehoshaphat of Judah arrived safely at home in Jerusalem, and Jehu, the son of Hananiah the seer, went out to meet him. Why should you help the wicked? So this is, what, this is what Jehoshaphat's doing. Why should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? He asked the king, because of what you have done, the Lord is very angry. So we have Asa, king, committed. His son, sitting in the recliner, begins to compromise. And then Asa's grandson, Jehoshaphat's son, is named Jehoram. And if we look to chapter 21, we have this long list, and I'm going to spare us all of reading this long list of all of Jehoshaphat's sons, but if you're looking for a Bible name uh, for naming your kid, 
I probably wouldn't suggest any of these. They're really hard to say. But in verse 4 of chapter 21, excuse me, verse 3, Jehoshaphat has given all of his son's gifts. But it says, however, he designated Jehoram as the next king because he was the oldest. Verse 4 says, but when Jehoram had become solidly as established as king, he killed all of his brothers and some of the other leaders of Judah. So there's a generational regression. You go from Asa, who loved God, to Jehoshaphat, who was kind of in the middle. He began to compromise things, to Jehoram, the grandson, who went totally away from what was before. And began killing and murdering. Throughout scripture, maybe a more familiar story is King David. King David, you know, David and Goliath, the guy who killed the giant. He became king. Now we know David was not perfect. He was far from perfect. And yet, he was somebody who loved God. His son, King Solomon, we know that he began to compromise, right? He had a couple hundred wives and he brought in with them all of their beliefs, all of their gods, all of their practices, and he began to compromise. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was completely, completely against the things of God. The committed, the committed followers of God, the committed followers of Christ, don't always have compromised children, but the people who are in the compromised category they often have children who are in the third chair. The people who are totally against the things of God. Maybe some of you, today, you're thinking about your family tree. Maybe you're in that committed seat, and as you look down the generations, you're seeing that regression. Maybe some of you are sitting in that second seat saying, man, my, grand my grandparents were just... They loved God. I don't see what the big deal is. You are experiencing firsthand. You are living in that regression. This is something that is a big, a big thought. If Christianity is true, if Christianity, if what I'm saying is true, it is of utmost importance. It is absolutely the most important thing if it's true. If Christianity, if what I'm saying is untrue, then it doesn't matter. It's of no importance. A belief in God is either extreme, extremely important, or it's completely unimportant. Christianity cannot be moderately important. It cannot be moderately important in your life. Now, I don't know a lot of you, but I would make a guess that this morning we have far more people sitting in chair number two than you all would like to admit. I think we have a lot of chair two people in this room right now today, people who say they love God, and yet a reflection of how they live their life would not be that they love God. If you're here this morning and you would say, I am a chair to person, your goal, your objective is to 
move from where you're at to be more like Christ and become a chair one person, somebody who loves God with all of their heart. If you're sitting over here in the beanbag chair, you're here and you're like, I'm, I'm here for the Dunkin' Donuts gift card. I didn't even, you know, I don't totally understand what's going on. Your goal should not be to move to chair two. Your goal should be to move to chair one as well. When we look at these chairs to help us understand how this impacts our lives, each of them has different priorities. The priorities of the people who are in the the bar stool, the committed chair, their, their priority is God first. They reject the moderate, the, the, the middle version of Christianity. Now, I grew up in what I would call a first chair home. I mean, my parents loved God. Like, we went to church. It was not an option. It was not a question. We went to church. I, I'm going to, you know, confess a little bit here. As a kid, I faked that I was sick to get out of going to church And guess what? I went to church. (laughs) I can remember only one time in my life not going to church. And it was Mother's Day of all days, which is like the biggest church. Like there's Easter and then there's Mother's Day. That's like in church world. That's the second biggest Sunday. I remember not going to church on Mother's Day. And that was only because my younger brother went flying through a pane of glass, cut himself all up. My sister passed out because of all the blood. My dad had the flu and was throwing up everywhere. It was a great day. And that was the only day I can ever remember not going to church. We still talk about that day in my house. Now, we didn't just go to church on Sunday. On Saturday, when the grass needed mowed at the church, guess what? We mowed the grass. When the roof needed fixing, we fixed the roof. And my dad was not a pastor. My dad worked for Lockheed Martin, and my mom was a school teacher. We just, we grew up in this priority that was God first. The second chair, the priority of their life is God and self. There's a struggle. There's a conflict in this chair. These would be the people that you would imagine the little angel on one shoulder and the little demon or devil guy on the other shoulder telling them what to do, and they struggle with making this choice. When it comes to making a choice, there's, a, there's an inner struggle. Jesus would be on the tip of their tongue. They would sing songs, and yet when it came to how they lived their life, they would be on the throne. Themselves would be on the throne. The people in the beanbag chair, they feel very little guilt than the people who are in second chair. Remember, there's no, there's no conflict. I, I do things my way because I'm the only one that matters. Now, when these three people view God, their views are often and, and not surprisingly different. Their view of God from the first chair is it's all about a relationship. These are the people who regularly spend time with God. They, they pray to Him. They listen to Him. They, they spend time and study His Word. That is the view of God for these people's lives. It's all about a relationship. The middle chair, it's all about a religion. It's a ritual to be endured. And some of you are living in the endurance right now. You're like, would this guy just please stop talking? This is, you're living in the ritual that is to be endured. Not 
a relationship to be enjoyed. People who live in this chair, their experience of God is tied to a memory. I remember I went to youth camp 10 to 20 years ago. Or I heard that Billy Graham guy on TV that one time. Or I remember I, I, I stood around the, the, the campfire as a kid. And some of you guys who grew up in youth group, you, you knew that campfire. You held that stick. And remember that stick? That stick represented all of the bad things that you did in your life. And what you were told to do is throw that stick in the fire. And, and their, their view of God is tied to that moment, that one moment in the past. Their view of God is limited to something that happened in the past. The view of God from the people in the third chair is that of rejection. Um, in their process of rejecting religion, they reject religion. When they do that, they reject God. Now, if you've ever sat in a beanbag chair, you know this to be true. The longer you sit in this chair, the harder it is to get out, right? Some of you have sat in a beanbag chair. You know that's absolutely accurate. You sit down in that thing, especially when you're old. Uh, it's hard to get out of that chair, right? Um, when we think about the Bible in light of these three chairs, chair one, there's a submission to the Bible, a, a submission. Understand that word. They submit their lives to the Bible. Now you said, Josh, how could you say, you don't even know us, how could you say that we're, there's most of us are living in chair two? Here's why. There's a researcher named Barna, and according to Barna Research, 8% of all Americans, think of all the Americans, 8% of them say that they submit their life to everything found in the Bible. 8%. So if we take a room, you know, maybe there's 100, 150 people. Eight people in this room submit to the Bible. The rest would fall in the other two chairs when it comes to a view of the Bible. The people who are in this chair, they, they respect the Bible. Even though they don't necessarily know what it says, they, they have a high respect level for the Bible. As they think about applying the things of the Bible to their lives, they would rephrase or, or re-ask certain questions like, I don't think God truly wants me to be unhappy. Or, I don't think God would be upset with what I actually said to that person because you don't know what I was thinking. I know it's not the best entertainment, but it's not a strip club. There's a, there's a compromise, there's a, a rationalization that comes. The people who are in this chair, their view of the Bible is they ignore it. And don't think atheistic or an atheist, think more apathetic. They just don't care. They just ignore what the Bible says. Now, what, what about when it comes to parenting? When it comes to parenting, the people who are in chair number one, their desire is to raise godly children. Now, if that's something that you would sit here as a parent, I'm a parent, I have three teenagers, three high schoolers, 
It's, it's always a little fun in my house. My goal, my desire, my objective for parenting is to raise godly teenagers. In order for that to happen, I have to live a countercultural life. I have to live a life that is radically different from everything else in the world. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to raise godly kids if I don't live a different life than the rest of the world. When it comes to parenting, the people in the middle chair, the, the recliner, their desire is to raise good children. Think the mindset of don't get your girlfriend pregnant, don't do too many drugs. It's all about how you feel, not about what's in your heart. Parenting is reduced in this mindset, in this chair, to behavior modification. Because when your behavior is bad, guess what? It reflects poorly on me as a parent, and so I want you to behave better. And the third chair, the beanbag chair, their parenting style is they want to raise successful children. Successful in sports or education or in finances. Something that's interesting is chair one people, people who are in chair one, generally raise chair one kids. Chair three parents generally raise chair three kids. Chair two parents generally raise chair three kids. Often this happens because they compare themselves to the wrong things. Chair three people, they stand over here and they compare themselves to chair two people. I'm not like those hypocrites. You want to know why I don't go to church? You want to know why I don't want anything to do with God or the Bible? It's because of the hypocrites. They compare themselves to the chair two people. Chair two people, they compare themselves to the chair three people, right? At least I'm not as bad as they are. I don't do the things that they do. I at least know who God is. Can't be that bad. While the people who are sitting in chair one, they don't compare themselves to either group over here. They compare themselves to God. And when they do, they find out what? And they realize what? That they are not adequate. That they are not good enough. I, Isaiah, when he had a picture of the Lord, he fell on the ground and he says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. I, I can't even look. And this was a vision. He says, I can't even look at God because I am not, I am not clean. They are overwhelmed with God's grace. In your life, the greatest thing you can do for anyone you love is to learn to walk with God. Parents, you can't give your kids anything greater than an example of loving God with all your heart. This idea is not just true in your home. This idea is true at your workplace. 
you might be able to make your boss or your company a lot of money or save a lot of money at your job, but there's nothing more impactful than you can do for your boss or your company than walk with God and love God fully. So have you been thinking about which chair you sit in? I have a challenge for you. Maybe on the ride home, maybe as you're getting ready for you know, the first week of football, watching my Eagles beat up on those Falcons. Uh, maybe as you're, you're getting ready for that, I challenge you to ask your family, to ask your kids, to ask your spouse, to ask your, somebody who's sitting with you, maybe in your small group, ask them this question. Which chair would you say that I sit in? Now, understand what that means. You've got to be prepared for the answer. You've got to be prepared for what they say. If they, if they say, Dad, you're, I would say, chair one. What areas of my life are leaning towards chair two? Because those people who are in chair one, you know that there are struggles where you're, you're constantly battling with this this compromise, this struggle. Paul says we daily have to die to ourselves. Ask him that question. What areas am I leaning towards chair two? If your spouse or if your kids or if your small group member says to you, you know, you're, you're in chair one, I, I would challenge you with this. Recommit or reconfirm your commitment to Christ because as we said, this is a daily struggle. If you say, I'm in chair one, sweet, I've arrived, now I can relax, what's going to happen? You're going to relax right into chair number two. Now, if you're in chair two, if your kids say, Dad, you're, I don't even know what chair number one meant, that you're in chair two, I would challenge you to repent of your duplicity. And, and that's a horrible, strong word. We call it balance, but really it's hypocrisy. It's duplicity. It's spiritual laziness. You might say, I don't, I don't want to go overboard or I don't want to be radical. I'm really, really glad that Jesus went overboard with his love for me. I'm really, really glad that, that his love for me caused him to do radical things. I'm glad that he didn't live his life in balance. When we think about it, if we're in chair two, we're not really following Christ at all. If you're here and you're in chair three, you need to receive Christ. You, you need to come to understand what he did for you. Jesus died on this cross, this horrible torture device, so that you and I could have access to eternal life. This love, even though we ignored him, rejected him, maybe even cursed him, this love transcends all of those evil things that we've done. 
what most people would call comfortable Christianity is really non-Christianity or, or being a non-Christian. What most people think is committed is likely comfortable. How can we live our lives that we model Christ in everything that we do? It takes effort. It takes work. It's a struggle. But this is our chance to impact this generation, to impact our future generations. Our desire is to be more like Christ. As a church, we want to make more and better disciples. And how we do that is modeling the actions that we do, the words that we say. We model them after Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. God, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to, to be honest with ourselves. It's difficult to realize or recognize that we are not living how we should. God, may today be a day where we, we understand that your calling on our lives is, is greater than our pride. It's greater than the realization that we are not perfect. God, you call us to be more like you, to live holy lives, set apart, radically different. God, today, if there are people here who are struggling with moving from whatever chair represented their life to, to a chair that is fully committed to you, God, I pray that they would find someone, talk with someone, ask prayer. God, that they would reach out to you, that they would call out to you in humility. God, and if there are people here this morning who don't yet know you as Savior, God, today would be their day. Today would be a day that we can celebrate with them new life. God, we thank you and praise you for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.